You're listening to the FinTech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. I'm Elliot Gotkin, and in this episode, how a sometime currency trader got together with a former florist to turn the sedate world of pensions into one of the UK's hottest fintechs. It was quite odd that you were in an environment where actually there was an enormous amount of uh, wealth, pressure from rarefied air, uh, and yet, you know, most of the people around the table just couldn't eat peas with a fork. Andrew Evans, co-founder and CEO of Smart Pension. Thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast. Uh, hello, Elliot. Delighted to be here. Looking forward to it. Thank you. So uh, just very briefly, just tell us what Smart Pension does to begin with. Uh, Smart Pension is a platform for global retirements looking to help members save uh, into their pensions and retirements across the globe. Okay, now, full disclosure, uh, you and I did go to school together, high school, uh, for those who call it that. Um, I do remember, you know, throwing javelins at each other in athletics and other shenanigans. Um, I guess you have fond memories. (laughs) Yeah, the last 25 years have been almost as exciting as, as the times that we spent together and it's lovely to see you again with a, like, a little interlude of quarter of a century in between. But yes, that is uh, that's very true. We did enjoy our childhoods together in a, in a variety of states of uh, uh, naughtiness. Yeah, all good though. <laughs> Great. Well, look, uh, your surname is Evans, uh, uh, which I guess is the, is the Welsh side of your family. But, but the other half is from Hong Kong. And uh, before that, they were kind of big shots in China, right? Uh, yeah, my mother's side. Yeah, my my mother is actually, I think, um, the seventeenth daughter of my uh, grandfather. So I think he was um, keen to have an extensive family. Um, pretty rich family history it can be traced back, I think, over a couple of thousand years. And um, I think for a period of time, uh, the family was almost Kardashian-like in its in its involvement around um, around China. So um, I don't think they were incredibly popular. In the 1950s, I don't think Mao Zedong uh, took uh, to them. So in the 1950s, uh, those that could headed to Hong Kong. And uh, I think there, that was where my grandfather, my mother's father, um, built up a variety of business, uh, primarily in electronics, um, and had uh, quite the head for business, uh, enjoyed it, uh, was apparently good at it as well. Um, but probably they, advantageous. He was with a small Japanese company, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think one of them. Yeah, I think he was um, looking after some aspects of Sony for a while. Um, but I think as well, he had his own electronics business. And I still think some of the stores are still in Hong Kong today, many, many moons after after his um, demise. Um, they're still existing in Times Square. There's a, some large uh, electronics uh, uh, shops there, which I think belong still to my family as well. So um, part and parcel of the uh, of the creation, I think, of Hong Kong's um, uh, in the 1950s and making it what it is today, which, uh, well, prior to the last year or two, was um, quite an impressive, impressive city. And when you, I don't want to get too much in politics, but when you see what's happening in Hong Kong now, do you, uh, do you still have family there? Are you concerned or sad to see kind of what's happening there? Well, no, my, my mother actually lives there now. So um, uh, she's been there now for five or six years and is incredibly happy there. She is very settled there, but I recognise... <laughs> Uh, maybe I am interested in making sure of her her well-being on a pretty regular basis, and I visit her uh, a lot as well. I haven't done in the last um, three or four months, but uh, I go over there two or three times a year. It's a nice town. It's a place that I've been thirty or forty times in my in my life uh, for holidays, and actually for a brief period of time, I worked there as well. So um, 
I enjoy the town. Hope it does uh, well over the coming uh, decades for lots of lots of reasons. And when did your family move to the UK, and and why? Uh, so my mother was um, over here to I think well, it was like finish her education. I think there was a belief in China, probably even now to this day, where um, an English education is how you complete A levels and uh, probably your university uh, things, and so with potentially an expectation that after after completing university, you go back to China to, uh, I think probably for my mother in her time to be dutiful. Um, but my mother met my father, uh, fell in love. Uh, that probably didn't go down too well with the Chinese side of the family, but um, I'm grateful for it. It resulted in, uh, in some positive aspects for me and my brother and sister. Um, yeah, so they, they met, gosh, 45, 50 years ago. I think it was at a bus stop. I think my father was late for a bus and my mother was early and it was a bit windy and uh, I think an umbrella sort of like in a comedy moment went like inside out and I think my mother laughed and um, the rest is history or at least uh, longer than this podcast. So, you know, I think that's how they met and how they started um, the courtship to be, uh, to be kind and on how everything was done. Wow, waiting for a bus. Uh, I guess uh, love can just be around the corner or, or, or anywhere. Uh, but yeah. your father, I mean, we talked a bit about your mother's father's entrepreneurship and still the legacy that's still there in Hong Kong. Uh, on your father's side, uh, on the Evans side, uh, you come from, I think, was it a long line of greengrocers, you told me? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we, did, we did look, um, I think we tried to do this like family tree or some, something where you can look up the census and every 10 years you can look back. But when your surname is Evans and you come from Bridge End, I think, is primarily the family. The, the, there is a long line of very similarly named people on the similar street. So it's actually quite difficult to ascertain once you go back about 150 years, which branch or line of the Evans, of the Evans clan. But yeah, I think we found a fruiterer, a grocer, a greengrocer. I think someone looked after a cinema for a little while as well. So, you know, there were some heady, heady times. But I think, you know, there was some artistry, artistic nature um, within that sort of Welsh side. Um, there were some, some of my cousins now are on Spotify with only a few thousand hits and just trying to um, portray to the world just their wonderful singing voices. We do have, I must say. Um, but yeah, there's uh, probably not too much uh, business acumen or entrepreneurship uh, running through their veins when you go through that side of the family. Your family on the Welsh side, you know, singing or, or grocers or fruit and vegetable sellers, your father um, almost seemed to kind of go into the same world as your maternal grandfather. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. So um, my father was, I think, um, not a frustrated academic, you know, he was a, a PhD bright person um, uh, and was, I think, more an inventor than a, than a business person. He came up with an idea in the late 1980s around um, a body around high definition television and digital television, which I think, you know, he was uh, pushing quite hard and patented and, and wrote books upon. Um, and, you know, he did well in trying to figure out how that could operate and work. But, you know, I think it was when a large European electronics company bought the patent off him and then um, start to build a distribution around that idea, maybe not with him. Uh, and then I think that's when it really started to take shape and, and take off. And I think, you know, that's the bit which, you know, I was starting to understand is that, you know, everyone can have a good idea or hopefully the, the potential to have a good idea is almost limitless. Uh, but access to capital, ability to try and build the product and distribute and, and, and make that a success, it requires more and more things which um, 
than just the idea. And I think my father was both delighted, but also uh, quite sad that his his idea, his baby was um, was brought up without him. Although, you know, from the rest of the family, just very proud that, you know, something so fundamentally um, required or needed to watch Netflix nowadays uh, was, you know, was in some small part um, uh, part of our family um, history. So, yeah, I think um, an awareness that inventing something is needed and important and part of uh, um, any successful entrepreneur's life. But, you know, what my grandfather did was probably not come up with the ideas. He just understood how to build the distribution of product lines. And I hope, I hope trying to marry the two and what I'm trying to do um, puts me, you know, once you marry this, the, the, the Chinese and Welsh sides together, then maybe there is just uh, some greatness ahead. But yeah, um, an interesting family background, that's for sure. Yeah. And do you think some of the uh, entrepreneurship of your grandfather on your mother's side and your father in terms of, you know, able to create something, do you think that had a profound impact on you that it's maybe in your genes or perhaps at least you were, you know, uh, at least mentally uh, inspired? Yeah, I think so. I think for me, I, you know, I've got a brother and sister and my, my brother has no interest in, in anything uh, to do with um, business. But, you know, and, and, well, you'll know me when I was uh, throwing javelins at you when I was 12 years old. But, you know, I, I always felt um, that that was something that would be very interesting to me. I remember starting in the city. I, I don't know if you want to talk about that later on. But, um, you know, there was always a desire to build something myself. There was always um, a, a strong, uh, almost need, maybe a want actually, to go off and test myself to see whether or not I can uh, figure something out and build something. So, um, yeah, I think, I think probably it, it must emanate from some aspects of um, gene pool and family life. But at the same point, you know, you always believe yourself to be an individual. You don't give credit to uh, <laughs> that you're a product of your mother and father. You'd like to believe that all of your hard work has no luck involved. Um, so, you know, I'll, uh, uh, there's a recognition or doff of the cap that actually between my mother and father's side, it's obvious that, you know, there would be some uh, inherent desire in at least one of my brothers and sisters or myself that we would look at this. Um, but it's certainly probably the strongest in myself. Yeah. But I think it took a while for you to kind of realize this or for this to emerge. Uh, because, I mean, I remember you at school, you weren't the laziest or the worst student, but you certainly weren't the most ambitious. Yeah, that's a fair, that's a fair reflection. <laughs> I don't think... Um, I was that, I, I found it difficult to, um, to put this as nice as I can, because uh, Elliot, you can just blow this up if you, if you so desire. Uh, my ability to concentrate on the task at hand um, was quite challenging, I think, during my school years and potentially even into my uh, university years. I, I found it difficult to see the reason or rationale or why it would be um, important to me uh, in my future life. I, I always found that uh, incredibly difficult. So I don't think I was lacking for ability to figure stuff out. Um, but I certainly wasn't in the top three quartiles of um, highly motivated individuals within the school. But um, easy to look at it from my point of view, there was, you know, the school was obviously excellent in how it tried to provide some attempts to uh, motivate um, its its uh, pupils. But um, I, it only really came to me uh, post-university where I realized that this was quite getting quite serious, where my efforts would be reflective of the life that I would lead for the rest of my life. So that seemed to incentivize me to knuckle down and try and figure out, certainly when I started in the city, um, how to go about um, 
surviving i think you know it wasn't just um doing well it was actually how do you um ensure that you maintain um yourself in an environment or in that in a job but before you went into the city i mean you went to loughborough university which isn't a bad university it's very well known in the uk for actually uh, its sporting prowess although not quite sure that uh, that had an impact on you um yeah. but but then you actually looked at you know some kind of career around golf to begin with didn't you yeah yes yeah. So very very short-lived period where you're right loughborough's um wasn't you know uh, the whole chess team and the uh, university golf team doesn't really uh, scream uh, the, the standard Loughborough experience um but yeah I, I looked at that for like a few a few months before there was a, just a, an epiphany a recognition or realization that you know my best case scenario I'll be selling Mars bars as an assistant pro in a golf shop somewhere in you know in in Surrey so I recognized that that felt a bit a bit suboptimal for a 40-year career um so i decided at that point uh, maybe golf wasn't for me and I, I looked um towards finance and you came back to the uk i think this is in 1997 to try and get a job and and i think it's very interesting how you went about that because some people might tap into contact some people will just apply for job interviews but you actually you know showed some i guess initiative yeah, I went to the London Stock Exchange, where I think at that point there was around 508 uh, member firms, and and I and I asked for a list of of them, and I would think, I think I wrote to every single one of those um, of those companies, and this is pre is it pre email, but it was certainly before email. You could send it to like the HR department and do that. So you you write to every single one of those companies, and it was back in the day where everyone would kindly write back to you as well, and so I think out of those 508 letters i think i got 506 rejections which they're all kind enough to write to me to tell me that they were putting my details on file and, and i think there was a period of time where i was getting about 50 to 60 letters a day where each and every one was like you know no dice but you know yeah i, I wanted to um to ensure that i had left not no stone unturned you know that was something which was I was able to do it felt as though um no one else was thinking about it and i got two interviews off the back of it um and i got one job off the back of it and that was at a french uh bank um to become a graduate derivatives trader um and that was my start so that was how i commenced and there was an awareness certainly when i started that job that if it did not go well i had tried 507 other companies uh, i was quite keen that this one went well so you know back to the point of like do you work quite hard at that point when you recognize that the alternative potentially is accountancy then yes yes you put in a proper shift at that point and so i, I went into a slightly different gear i noticed from around then um, to ensure that i did the best that i could uh, to survive what was quite uh, an interesting induction into the into the city yeah maybe you can tell us i mean how was it what was the what was the culture like there were there any events that stick in your mind from from that time as uh i'm not not sure if they were formative but certainly ones that uh, that stuck in your mind yeah yeah i think i think it was it was probably the time where you know i think you know i watched the wolf of wall street a few years ago and you're thinking it's almost tame in comparison to like the universe that i occupied for a few years i was in foreign exchange which was probably um the sharper end of the uh, the asset classes that you could look at at that time um uh, it was just at that sort of inflection point where the um, people within that in industry were looking at degrees. Um, I think if you fast forward two or three years after I arrived, I think, you know, mathematics and masters and all that sort of stuff made a ton of sense. But 
I think, you know, when I was joined, I was probably the this first or second batch of people who actually had, you know, had, hadn't left school at 16, you know, weren't just um, from the East End who were just super sharp, smart, um, savvy individuals who knew how the markets and the brokers and the industry worked. And they were not necessarily that keen to impart knowledge upon people uh, because, you know, you were seen as a threat to take their job. So, you know, there were there was hijinks. Um, I think the ones which I could probably repeat, which you just sit there and go, oh, my God, there is, you know, multiple infractions of HR uh, policies on a daily basis. I remember the chap next to me on my graduate scheme. I think, you know, he used to get tied to his chair, wheeled down on the elevator and, and put into St. Mary's Axe on a regular basis whenever he got the wrong side of a trade. Um, I do recall uh, the delights of being um, of being with my colleagues and thrown out of a variety of Michelin-starred restaurants because um, someone was throwing the artwork or, or various dishes around. And so it was quite odd that you were in an environment where actually there was an enormous amount of um, uh, wealth, um, uh, pressure, some rarefied air, uh, and yet, you know, most of the people around the table just couldn't eat peas with a fork. So it was just quite um, an interesting um, uh, world for me to occupy. So, um, but, you know, uh, the positives are, is that you learn very rapidly and quickly. Um, any mistake that you make are, are really quite drummed out of you. Uh, the screaming in your face where you could f- feel spittle um, to tell you what they actually thought of you and your um, your loved ones on a pretty hourly basis um, is not for everyone. Um, but it did ensure uh, that I learned quickly and it also ensured that, you know, in, in future life, whenever you're in, in a challenging work situation, you can always say, at least it's not like my first job uh, because there was a, it was um, quite a, an active learning experiment. Um, quite different now, the city I hear. Um, and, and that's a good thing. So you learned a lot, but at the same time, when you, you know, you moved on to various positions and I think in, in 2005, you had your first stab as at being an entrepreneur you kind yeah. of had to unlearn that i remember speaking with uh, anil stocker the uh, uh, ceo and, and uh, founder of uh, market finance talking yeah. about how he came from the city from lehman brothers and had to kind of unlearn the culture uh, to apply that to his own business because that's just not a culture that was either pleasant or you know propitious for for a, a startup to grow yeah completely yeah so you know um oh five you could i'm not saying you can get away with it but the culture was yeah was pretty horrific in in the city uh, maybe in different departments you know it could be different you know equity could be a little bit more classy particularly in the analyst space and m and I'm, I'm sure there were areas or pockets where and then you know the people are good and can be good and you know the aspects of good and everyone but you're right um the short-term nature of the city wasn't conducive to build something you know when i when i left uh, my french bank after what three and a half years and uh, there was about 84 85 people in that room i think i was about the seventh longest serving member of staff you know so you're not creating a culture which is nurturing or medium to long term in vision or thinking and probably at that stage of the world that wasn't seen as something that was desirable or wanted or needed i mean you're still probably pre facebook and everything technology driven at that point um so I remember when I when I tried in 05, I, I, I made an attempt. I was thought that there was some um, societal good plus growth, amazing gross margins in um, both uh, nurseries and at the time old people's homes. Um, you know, the ability to capture financing was now, you know, that's the thing that everyone tries to figure out. I found that incredibly easy. If, if anything, this was, you know, pre 
uh, global financial crisis, it was very easy for me to gain uh, financing. Um, but in terms of trying to then execute on a plan, you know, you become uh, a little bit late, not lazy is the incorrect word. When you're in a bank, particularly when you're a specialist, you have many people around you that assist and help you, which you probably don't always give credence or credibility to. And when you have to do that yourself, um, you suddenly recognize that actually your efficiency just, you know, just dives off a cliff. Um, and it was quite an experience for me, positive, that to do things yourself and to try and figure things out for yourself was much harder than I realized. And it made it more um, enticing. It made it actually more interesting to try and figure out and solve. Um, but at the same time, I found it uh, that later that year in 05, when I was trying to build this old people's home and, and I had the financing available to me, um, at, after four, five, six months, there was an awareness that the pace of how that was going to develop wasn't what I wanted to go at. And so I did go back into the city for another stint um, before before I went back into entrepreneurship uh, in the last five or six years. So, sorry, you, you got the financing. Uh, how, how much money did they uh, did the banks kind of shove your way? Oh, yeah. So, so at that point, uh, I actually, you know, now you look at it and everything in, in this world is equity financing when you're in the startup universe. But pre-2007, I, I managed to go convince two banks, I think of like a four-page report that, you know, I was definitely worth putting some money towards. And I think I got like um, a 2.2 million pound debt financing line off an Irish bank and a 2.0 million line off a building society in the United Kingdom. Um, and, you know, just absolutely no chance of getting like 50 quid out of them both now. But back in that time, um, you know, that was at 100% financing on businesses um, off, off a business plan, which, which now, you know, any standard VC would laugh at. Um, but, you know, it was a different, different world back then. So you, you didn't actually take that, that money. So you didn't actually lose any money. So, so the business was kind of a failure, but I guess it, it could have been worse. worse. It's not like you lost your shirt or, or your home. No, no, just, just, just um, started to understand, you know, just how little I knew, um, which was both pleasant and humiliating. Um, but no, there was no, there was nothing apart from um, looking like someone who'd had a midlife crisis because I left the city purposefully. Um, and then I think, you know, for a number of people, certainly within the city, when you go back five or six months later, they can create the narrative in their head that, you know, this was just, you know, just a very small period of time where I was thinking differently. But for me, it was a realization that actually I'm going to go back into this. This is the thing that I actually want to spend my time figuring out and exploring. Um, it just wasn't quite the right time for me. So I went back into the city for a period of time. But it whetted the appetite. It made me understand that that was what I eventually needed or wanted to do. Right. So you went back into the city. You rose through the ranks at various banks. And I think uh, at one point you were head of wealth at, uh, at Lloyd's Bank in, in the UK. You had a great job. You had a great salary. Mm. And then in 2013, you just walked away from it. How hard was that to do? Uh very easy which 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 <laughs> makes me realize i really wasn't for the city i think i'm one of the unusual ones who actively wanted to leave you know uh, at the time i'm not sure how i would have continued under that that role you never know but you know i was very well liked or or, or i had opportunity there over and above six months you know and, and and therefore to walk away from that was considered again incredibly unusual um, but, you know, they were kind enough to um, overpay me for a couple of years. So, you know, it was, um, you know, it gave me the opportunity set to actually go and do 
my, an idea properly. You know, I really felt as though I had a two or three year um, chance at building something, and that's all I wanted. Uh, so, you know, um, and that, yeah. that's because you you had enough money set aside to kind of tide you over for for a year or two. Uh, yeah, there was a feeling of that. I mean, I'm not sure in hindsight that was the case. Um, you know, there was uh, children and um, and various other things as well. So, you know, some of my assumptions need to be stress-checked on that. Um, in finance, you can feel as though you're rising the ranks and I was getting into a relatively senior position and, um, you know, looking after a couple of thousand people and all that sort of stuff. And, and you sit there and you just go, well, okay, well, it's... Um, but, but when you're actually trying to do stuff yourself, it's a very different feeling, or certainly for me... Um, and it was one that provides both freedom and, and fear and, and all these things. But, you know, that's actively what I wanted to do. So it didn't feel, didn't feel challenging uh, to make that decision. It felt as though I was trying to figure out where do I want to focus my attention and who would help along that route as well. And, you know, in 2013, it was just an awareness that my co-founder, Will, um, and I we were very aligned in what we saw on this and I was looking at pension. I was looking at mortgages and stuff at the time. And, you know, just, you know, uh, asset classes with just a ton of assets and, and, and no technology just seemed super interesting to me. Um, and Will is just someone I've known since, Oh, actually I met him in my first week of a graduate training program back in that French bank. So we known each other for 20 plus years. We, we, you know, once you're above a certain age, it's difficult to always understand and know people, um, intrinsically um but when you know them when you're younger again yeah back to javelin throwing aren't we but um you know we we you, you do understand the personality drivers or some aspects of that person as you see them grow up indeed and you you walked away of course you didn't just walk away for the hell of it you you this is when you came upon the idea of, of smart pension you said you were looking at various asset classes but but how did you actually decide with your co-founder will this is what we're going to do. We're going to create this platform for um, for pensions starting in the UK. It was a dinner, actually. I had, I mean, uh, Will, myself, and uh, actually someone from our school, uh, Elliot, so Tony, um, we, we, we all worked at this French bank um, 20 plus years ago. And so we, we met up every six months. And it was at that meal that, you know, Will and I were discussing quite a lot. I was getting frustrated at my at that bank at the time that i couldn't figure out how to do some cross-sell distribution well i was a fascinating person obviously at dinners um and so actually will and i were discussing about whether or not there was potential for us to have a go together and it was it felt like it was more than just pub talk it felt more than just you know uh, two beers in just saying we can we can figure stuff out and you know will is um is a, a very intelligent logical driven person and so you know the next morning he's firing in 15 ideas and i just adored um that thought process and, and honestly we're what, what six years in or five or six years in now and he's he's exactly the same it's just brilliant to be working with someone who both thinks completely differently to me and yet through a completely different analysis we come to the same conclusions an enormous amount of the time and when we don't uh each side is listening very intently about how to be convinced on either logic or various other things about why, why someone is correct or why we should follow a path or maybe look at both for a little while. Um, it's been a ton of fun to do it on a co-founder model rather than just um, by yourself. Where I remember feeling sometimes at the end of my time at, uh, in banking that you feel as though that can be relatively lonely is the wrong word, um, but relatively exposed, I think. 
again, one of the toughest things for startup founders, fintechs or in any other space is raising money. But you seem to have a bit of the Midas touch or just very good ideas because VCs were just literally falling over themselves to, to give you money at the beginning. Uh, yeah, we've, we've been fortunate. Um, well, I remember now angel round um it didn't feel that way i think we had about 55 meetings and, and some of them last you know four or five meetings or 55 introductions and i think just over half offered us money which i remember at the time just thinking well that's a low hit rate and now you come out and you think oh my god that's actually pretty decent um and then yeah we've we've in the last four or five years we've done a series a b and c um we we brought in some institutions some um uh, vc money some individuals um, and yeah, I think, you know, definitely one of the things that we, Will and I seem to be quite good at is um, creating the right um, information set to show to people that this is an interesting opportunity. Um, but, it, but it is right. I mean, the industry in pensions is what, $47 trillion, um, you know, in terms of how many assets there are. And, and there's no one really with a technology bent within the United Kingdom and, you know, without saying too much more there isn't really anyone in other countries as well and the and the framework is almost identical so you know that's why there is excitement about the uh, possibilities and potentials of what we're trying to do um and i think it's been reflected in some of our investors and you know we've got um you know the, the three big markets for us are what the united states australia and the uk in that order are the three largest markets and you know it's not it's not by coincidence that we have jp morgan from the states we have the link group in australia who are the largest pension superannuation company and we have what legal and general and barclays in the uk these are these are not um coincidences you know we are trying to figure out mechanisms and ways to build our distribution or abilities in those key countries and so just going back uh, you talk about raising funds and some really great names you've just listed there how, how much have you raised so far uh we've raised over 100 million pounds and is the valuation something you can share? Um, we have aspirations to have uh, three commas at some stage, um, but at the moment uh, we can only get there if we put it into Japanese yen. But you know, we are we are um, we are going at quite a rate. You know, we're, we're growing at over one hundred percent a year. When you look at almost any metric, um, the valuation sits at a very nice level now. Um, but there is a, um, a desire, actually not a desire or an aspiration or ambition anymore. There is an understood expectation that the that the company um, will eventually be worth um, a few billion pounds. And it's just a, a, an execution roadmap now, which both makes it exciting and a bit dull. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there is uh, an awareness that we have an opportunity because we have multiple government contracts now. We have multiple uh, financial institutions. Um, uh, utilizing our platform uh it is something that um the path is set and we're just ensuring that we're getting to hopefully a good place over the next uh, two or three years and i think uh, one of your uh, other early investors tom valentine has a bit of a mantra when it comes to to fundraising that you kind of stick with right yeah yeah he was wonderful actually so uh, uh tom is one of the co-founders of um Secret Escapes, and he's been uh, one of our Neds on our board from uh, day one. He just recently um, left us after a five-year stint, you know, and all good behaviour. Uh, but I recall when we were at the um, Angel Round, and probably probably Series A, and asking for his, and, you know, he was a couple of years ahead, and, you know, um, asking him, you know, how do you d 
determine or dictate who which funding that you take and pricing and all that sort of stuff you know we've been in a fortunate position in every round that we feel as though we're oversubscribed so um tom's advice was you know uh, take the most amount of money at the highest price and then figure out figure out the rest afterwards uh, you know that's your job as a ceo is to manage that dynamic you know and i was sitting there thinking, well what about you know do i get you know if there's someone who can help me on product or, or anything around the marketing piece or that and he was going no that's your job to figure it out Andrew. You, you know and you know your responsibility is to like take money and his point was valid right which was you know in almost every instance the reason for failure in a business is that you run out of money um it can be for many other reasons terrible idea lack of you know lots of things but you know the key reason is that you do not have any money and you don't normally hear about these wonderful ideas where the corpses are strewn across the battlefield. So he said, you know, your idea is good. Um, this is what's happened from a couple of other key investors. You know, we've been very kindly, uh, a lot of help from Simon Rogerson, who's the CEO of Octopus Group, and William Reeve, who's just a fintech legend. And both of them were saying something very similar-ish, which is broadly, you, you, you're trying to find ways to grow. You found an industry which is clearly exciting, um, their desire to ensure that we keep growing is almost limitless. And so therefore they have no fear of raising money if the ROI is sensible. Um, we have a lot of positive support, I know, across many investors and they offer advice of which many people have done this before and their data points are valid. And we do like to figure stuff out ourselves, but if someone's gone through pain themselves, it's incredibly helpful for us to know about it. And, you know, it's not just money for money. As you said, you know, it was, it was particularly uh, uh, desirable to have investment from LNG and Barclays in the UK, Link Group in uh, Australia and JP Morgan in the US. One imagines that the US is, you know, perhaps the, the biggest of those prizes. When do you, when does Smart Pension expect to be rolled out in the US? Uh, there will be an announcement shortly, Elliot. Uh, sadly, genuinely sadly not for today but um we spent some time trying to understand how to unlock that and we are now just in the in the process of being able to um say some things but probably probably not for today but you're, you're right it is the largest market um if you can figure out how to look at the 401k market and there have been some policy changes recently which allow opportunity so so there will be uh, a stay stage quite shortly where some announcements can be made about um, various deals, one and all that sort of stuff. One assumes competition in the US will be a bit stiffer. It's not common, it's not unprecedented, but it's not common that, you know, let's say UK startups, you know, kind of go to the States with something novel that, that hasn't been done there or by someone bigger and better. But what is the competition like there? Yeah, good point. So, you know, we, we want to be more like the Beatles rather than, you know, uh, no, Robbie Williams. Uh, probably that is that is not the best. I work I work on my analogies. It's better to I do sport or war rather than um, uh, bad musical singers. I think it's probably this very similar in the States, UK and Australia in that all these pension platforms um, are broadly been have massive technology debt underinvested for decades because the money flows in irrespective or not. And so, you know, all, all the platforms in those three key markets are broadly built off technology from the 1970s and 80s, Cobalt, you know, where they like four 
um, developers still use it and you, they can charge a fortune because um, they still use mainframes, they still use ethernet cables, they still use fax machines, phones, and it's just dismal. Um, the benefit that we can do almost on day one is to say by incorporating or utilizing a modern technology stack and platform is that they save a ton of cash and leakages are gone and there's frictionless flow of into, into flow into, into funds and so actually there's a benefit. It's not just increased distribution and sales and all that sort of stuff when we work with our partners or, you know, when we're looking at doing it ourselves because we go into other countries ourselves sometimes. Um, it's the cost savings almost on day one are insanely positive. And when you've got a book of, you know, um, uh, 20 billion uh, assets under management, then when you're saving um, just 10 basis points and you're saving 20 million a year, you know, you, you, you'll, you're saving, you know, a quarter of a billion over the course of a 12-year contract. And at that point, you dictate, it dictates that you spend some time trying to find the best solution globally. And when you're looking at the best solution globally, uh, we've noticed that in most conversations that we've had with governments and large institutions, um, they come to a conclusion that working with us is not a bad idea. So, you know, we are delighted because, you know, we're still young, we're still four or five years old, we have a number of government contracts and it's helpful then to have these investors like JP Morgan and, and, and the like, because that helps with some credibility, but they all do their due diligence. You know, we have spent many delightful weeks and months being, um, going through DD processes with investors, with, um, strategics, with, um, people that were working, entering into commercial deals. So the companies had to grow up a lot, right? You know, five years ago, there's three of us. Now there's 400 of us it's taking time to um, figure stuff out, but we're doing it hopefully at a pace which is um, acceptable to our investors level. And how many companies, how many employees now are effectively smart pension customers? Uh, yeah, so it's ours our own, you know, we're, you know, we're closing in on like 100,000 companies and about six or 700,000 members, but how many people that we actually help and serve as members across the globe, you know, whether with our partners using our platforms, stuff like that, I think, next year or two, I think we're going to go above 10 million members. Um, it will run into tens of billions of assets. Um, you know, you're starting to get quite material when you're, when you're, you're talking about tens of millions of people and that's just um, broadly just executing on our pipeline and deals that we've already won. So, um, it's starting to take some shape. Okay. Now, unfortunately, uh, in this day and age, uh, no conversation with a business or a founder can, uh, take place without discussing, coronavirus pensions one assumes are not something that you know people are going to switch on or switch off or perhaps they might if they, if they lose their jobs but but how has that impacted you uh, as a company and uh, as a business broadly you know it's, it's societally it's obviously yet to be seen how horrific it will be um from an industry it has made almost no effect at all um, and as a company, it has probably been slightly beneficial to us in that there is awareness when we speak to our potential partners or partners that a face-to-face -face distribution model to try and sell people product or to help people with retirement or anything of this nature is not going to work for at least one year and probably much longer. And so there is more desire now to move towards a technology solution 
And the other piece I've noticed is that when we are actively talking with a, a government with six or seven companies around the globe keen to be of service, what we've we found is that two, three, four of them have had to drop out of these types of conversations in the last few months because they they do not have the technology or the capabilities to deliver this um, without their previous uh, office model. So we are finding that we are now in conversations with less uh, competitors as we go through this. So, you know, I, I, you, you don't like talking about having a good war or silver linings to this, um, but, you know, a B2B SaaS model, when, you look, when you're talking to the private equity companies, is something which is a bit more... Uh, resilient to um, coronavirus events than, you know, sadly, leisure, travel and other other things like that. I'm glad you mentioned private equity companies. I'm not sure uh, how many uh, conversations or how deep they've gone with uh, uh, private equity firms. Uh, where do you see the destination, if you like, of smart pension? Do you see some kind of uh, initial public offering, uh, an IPO, perhaps a trade sale, private equity taking over, being bought by a bank? What, where where do you see the end of the line for Yeah, I think, I think, you know, we, um, you know, this is the, <laughs> so and just to be politically correct, you know, I think, you know, we have a job to do in the next three, four, five years to do, deliver on what we say we will, which is, feels as though it's in our gift and our grasp. It doesn't feel as though now we are we're past the stage where, you know, people will look in the whites of our eyes to see whether or not we are the people that they want to do business with and figure out if we can um, pivot or, or change path when when there are uh, market corrections or things that happen. You know, once you get to what Series D that we're at, um, broadly, you're looking at spreadsheets. Um, and so there's an expectation that we will do what we say we will because we always have and we've delivered on time, on budget, on every other every other thing. So so we'll we will hopefully get there. And then that leads to an array of choice, as you said, um, Elliot. And I wouldn't be surprised that if I've got a lot of long dated contracts and things where it's steady flow, then actually um, we have opportunity to have discussions with any and every um, part of that sort of capital markets universe. Um, but, you know, the IPO route um, is as good as any. So we shall see. Whether or not I will have to don a suit at some point in three to five years' time, that has been a long while. Um, but you know, there is you want to have these quality discussions or problems, and to get there, you need to deliver a ton of stuff in the meantime. And and so I think you know, there's a concentration on on delivering on what we say we will, and then all these wonderful things and conversations about how we do this can happen in a few years' time. Well, I certainly look forward to seeing you in a, a suit again. I remember you looking quite dapper in your school blazer and and tie. Uh, perhaps your shirt was untucked, I can't remember. Uh, but look, just, just finally, Andrew, looking back, um, what do you think it took for you to get to where you are today? Was it when the penny dropped and you said to yourself, right, if I don't really work hard to get what I want to get, then I'm just going to end up being an accountant, uh, living in, I don't know, Rickmansworth or somewhere? Um, was it determination? Were, was it just that you happen to know your co-founder will for example and that you found a like-minded individual uh, with similar ambition looking back what is it that you think got you to where you are today um it's probably all those things isn't it um you know uh, you, you don't hear enough about how luck plays an incredibly large part on everything you know i know how hard i've worked i know how much i've given i would imagine every founder co-founder can say something very similar so you know you are trying to 
have the connectivity and convince people. I've just been blessed with a co-founder who is just ace. Um, just, you know, that is something which has made this journey and path so much more fun and enjoyable for me. Um, but, you know, people, you, you change along the way. If you talk to my friends that I've met in the last 20 years, they, they see me as a very driven individual. You know, you talk to people from school and people do not see me in the same <laughs> light, to say the least. Um, um, but, you know, the things that you learn along the way, and there's a, there's a path where you have your natural proclivities, which I wanted to run a business, but it requires, you know, me to have either done very well or very badly at banking to have then undertaken this. Um, timing is key, you know, because the pension legislation led to this being just absolutely taking off like a rocket when we, when we started this. We were trying to do a quite tactical play of just acquire companies and the stickiness of them. So it wasn't a strategic play at the beginning. It was just, you know, I've got two and a half years to acquire this and we've got nine distribution channels and how do we do that? And then actually it's quite odd, you know, two years into the company, it turns into quite a strategic discussion between myself and Will, you know, about what we're trying to do and what we're trying to deliver. And, you know, that happens a lot in companies, right? The very few companies start as a pure play and then just stay that way. You know, Monzo did it, but, you know, not many people have just stayed to the same business model um, from day one. And I, and, I, and I see that as a good thing, you know, that you move and you understand where the opportunities lie, where your assumptions about some opportunities are diminished. Um, but I've enjoyed the journey. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed and very grateful to have been allowed to um, build this. I think I've done my bit of the side of the deal, but you know, it's something as well, which I'm aware that it didn't have to be this way. Well, uh, congratulations for, for, for helping make it uh, be that way. And, and thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to us. Uh, Andrew Evans, co-founder and CEO of Smart Pension. Uh, really appreciate your joining us on the FM Tech podcast. Thanks, Emily. Really appreciate it. When I was at school with Andrew, he wasn't exactly what you'd call a go-getter. When we left, I don't think I saw him again till around the global financial crisis 14 years later. He was head of wealth at Lloyds Bank, and I was standing outside in the cold, reporting on the lender's woes. As with any startup, success at Smart Pension wasn't guaranteed, and nor was it a linear path. He failed at being a golfer and failed again at trying to set up a chain of nursing homes. Yet he knew he wanted to create something. He saw a massive niche that was getting a big boost from changes to regulation, and he went for it. It helps, of course, that he could afford to do so. But if there's one takeaway from this week's podcast, I think it's this. If you're going to do something, you've got to go all in. Find a co-founder who complements your skills and, if you're lucky, an industry that's about to be opened up by changes in regulation. So thank you, Andrew Evans, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a nice rating and review. And you can listen to all previous episodes of the FinTech podcast via our website, f-in-tech.com. And if you've got any comments, suggestions or feedback, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at podfintech or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. We'll be back next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.